What's your name? Pat Vendetti. What's your occupation? Relief pitcher. Do you pitch left-handed or right-handed? Depends on the day, but usually both. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, we get to learn the story of ambidextrous pitcher Pat Vendetti. Yes, he's a switch pitcher. Not a switch hitter. He's a switch pitcher. That makes him unique enough, but the story of how he ever reached professional baseball and eventually the major leagues is a journey of perseverance and dedication. That's all next. This is Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Scenes, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. All right, Pat, thanks so much for joining me. I know it's not easy when the visiting broadcaster goes up to you and says, hey, do you have like 30 to 45 minutes of your time? But thank you for joining me. Hey, uh, you're getting me out of BP here, so it's it's helping me too. (laughs) Okay, all right. So let's start with this. What is your earliest memory of playing baseball? That would probably be uh, T-ball. I remember actually I was talking about this the other day with one of the guys, and we were just talking about how, you know, Little League and all that seems like such a long time ago. But there is a specific day. I remember I always wanted to hit last. Because if you hit last in T-ball, you got to run all the way around the bases, you know, because you don't have to get the third out. Right. And I would always try to get a grand slam because you come up, the bases are usually loaded. You can't get any outs. And the umpire called me out at home plate when I slid, and I was so, so distraught. I remember it was like two hours after the game, and I was still upset about it. And my brother, who's quite a bit older, about 15, 16 years older than me, he's like, no, no, it's okay. You were safe. You were under the tag. And, you know, once I got that, uh, you know, verification that, that I was safe, I was okay. But that, that's probably my first baseball memory. So the story goes that you're in the backyard with your dad, like I was with my dad, like thousands of other kids are with their dads. And he has this idea that he's going to have you throw left-handed and right-handed. Pick up the story. I know you've told it a thousand times of how this came to be. Yeah, you know, so it's been always been told to me. I don't have very, you know, a very good recollection of how it all started. But the way I understand it, um, when I was three years old, my dad had the idea, if there can be switch hitters, why not a switch pitcher? So, you know, he thought that, uh, you know, that would be a good time to start working on my left hand because as it had seemed, everything I was doing in life, I was I was right-handed. That's just, you know, how I was genetically made. So from that day forward, you know, we would di- do things like throw the football. He would have me eat both hands, uh, write both hands. <laughs> Quick little funny story. I was in third grade, and uh, the teacher my dad had asked her if she would, you know, have me write with both hands during the school day. And I couldn't write left-handed at all. You know, if you're naturally right-handed, writing left-handed is, is almost impossible to do. So I'd always write, like, the first letter left-handed and then switch it back over. I didn't think she saw me. But uh, she sent a letter home to my dad, and I got in trouble for not writing with my left hand, if you can believe that, in third grade. So just stuff like that to develop the motor skills. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's how it all started. But you don't know any different because this is the only, I mean, you don't know that this is unusual. At what point in your life do you realize, okay, this is unusual for me to be doing this with both hands? Probably high school. Uh, You know, when you're 
great school ball. You're just out there having a good time with your buddies. You don't really think about matchups or anything else like that. And then once you get to high school or where there's a little bit more attention around it and then, you know, emphasis on success becomes to be a little bit more uh, elevated, then you can start to see that, hey, you know what, I'm a little bit different. I'm doing something else that nobody else does. Okay, so when I'm playing baseball as a kid, if if a neighbor across the street, if he's throwing a knuckleball, I want to throw a knuckleball. If he's got a big old leg kick or if he's got his arms up like that, right, we're constantly mimicking each other. So how many kids in your neighborhood would want to mimic you and say, okay, can I throw left-handed and right-handed also? You know, with that, you'll get one or two throws a day, and then they'll feel it, and they'll be like, oh, I'm not going to waste my time with this. This is miserable. <laughs> Okay, so when you were still playing youth baseball, you know, like you said, T-ball and then youth and you start to move up, did you match up then or would it go one inning right-handed, one inning left-handed? How did you differentiate as a, as a young kid? Right. No, I would go based on the game. So I would throw one game right-handed, one game left-handed. And, you know, I didn't understand matchup advantages until I was in college. Even at the high school level, I didn't realize that, you know, if I throw left on left here, I'm going to probably have more success against this guy. So once I got to college, then – that's when I, you know, stopped being a starter, went strictly to the bullpen. And specifically my sophomore year, I got dropped down sidearm because I had such a miserable freshman year with not a lot of success. They dropped me down sidearm left-handed and that for some reason, it just came really simple, really, uh, really easy to me. And I was able to pick it up after a couple of weeks. And that's really what helped my career. I want to go back just for a moment to high school. By the time that you get to high school, does your coach realize, okay, this kid is ambidextrous. We can use him in both ways. Or was there still a certain element of, you know, just do one thing and, and work on that? No, I was very fortunate. Uh, my, my high school coach in Omaha, Scott Hodges, was very instrumental in my de- development. And, uh, you know, starting freshman year, sophomore year, I was in the lower levels. I was never on the varsity team. So I would, you know, he was just developing me, allowing me to pitch one full game left-handed, one full game right-handed. And then eventually junior year, I was able to uh, to pitch. And then he did utilize me. You know, if we're at a weekend tournament, my first game would be pitching left-handed on Friday. And then I would come back Sunday as a right-hander. So that's that's how that all worked. Did people think that you had a twin? <laughs> all the time. You know, <laughs> in Little League especially, my dad would be leaving the park and, you know, a dad would come up to him and say, hey, your twins pitched a great game today. And, you know, rather than explain it, I think he would just chuckle and say thanks. <laughs> all right. So coming out of high school, what were your options in terms of where am I going to go to school? Am I still going to be able to play baseball? What were your options? Right. Yeah. So uh, after my senior year, I had a pretty good year. Um, good numbers, but I was throwing in the high 70s with both arms, maybe low 80s right-handed. So there were not a whole lot of offers. There was Midland Lutheran, which was an NAIA school, and then Missouri Western was a D2, were the only places where I was invited to come play. And then my dad actually called coach service there at Creighton. We grew, I grew up like a mile away from campus, and my high school was about a block from campus there in downtown Omaha, and asked if there was any chance I could come walk on and see what would happen. And luckily, Coach Service had watched me pitch earlier that summer against his son. I, I had a pretty good game. And he said, yeah, Pat can come down. Um, we'll have a spot for him on the team. But as far as making the travel roster and all that, that's, that's going to be up to him. And, you know, obviously no scholarship money. So that, that's how that all started down at Creighton. Okay, so I, I read a quote that uh, the Ed Service had in the New York Times. And he admitted that initially he resisted using you both ways. He said, quote, I'm a traditionalist when it comes to baseball, and I didn't want it to become a circus. So your freshman year, you only threw right-handed, correct? No, I, I pitched both ways. You did p- pitch both. Yeah, so I came into the fall ball there knowing that I had to have a really good fall, and I did. I, I had a very successful fall 
And then I actually made the first trip because back then, I don't know how it is now, but you could only travel with 25 or 28 guys. And we had like 40 on the team. So I was able to make that initial travel squad, which was my huge goal. And then, you know, once that happened, I just, I did not perform well once the game started. So he gave me an opportunity. I think it was about three weeks into the season. I pitched in my first game and I was able to switch back and forth, but I just, I wasn't ready for that competition and I I failed. And then after that, I sat for three months, never made another trip. We had a bunch of injuries. I get activated for a May 12th series against North Dakota State. I go have a good inning. Two more guys get hurt. Next thing I find myself, I'm in the conference tournament in the championship game against Wichita State. And, you know, that that game didn't go very well. But uh, I was in the regionals as well that year. But it was just a big, big struggle. I mean, it can be a big struggle for anyone who's who's a freshman. You're getting used to new environments. You're getting used to some more difficult talent. Plus, you're trying to maintain, you know, throwing from two different, from you know, left-handed and right-handed. Um, you know, how's your level of self-confidence at this point in your life about your future in baseball? Right. At that point, it was extremely low, especially I remember – that night after we lost to Wichita State, it would have been our first conference championship in the Missouri Valley going against Gene Stevenson and his team. And I think I came in, we were down a run, and by the time I left, we were down five or six, and the game was, was out of control. So that was that was a tough night. And then we drove through back home to, to Omaha, and I had a little 13-inch TV in my room, and I turned on Fox Sports Midwest, and there's a replay of the game on when I get into my bed at like 2.30 in the morning. So it was just another, it was another kick in the gut. But uh, it was it was tough. And I knew that some things had to change. And, you know, that summer I started to get to work, changed my body a little bit. And that's kind of what started to transform my career. Yeah, and then you mentioned how you, how you changed the arm slot going left-handed. Explain how you're able to pick that up. Yeah, you know, that's one of those things where... You know the human body is so unique, and you don't understand. Maybe, maybe one thing's going to work for 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 you, and another thing won't. And that was one of those things where I was always over the top right-handed. And then maybe about two weeks into fall ball, Travis Wyckoff, our pitching coach at the time, said, "Hey, let's see, let's see how sidearm is." And uh, the slider, especially, it just came very easy to me. I was able to pick targets, start it there, end it at other places. And once I got that, if you can throw sidearm left-handed, even in the low 80s in college and now, even in professional ball, I don't throw much over 83 ever left-handed. You're able to find yourself uh, in a good position. The first batter that you face after you make the transition, how much of a – explain what type of mental reset you have to do when you switch whichever way you're switching. Yeah, some days it's easier than others. Uh, last night I got a couple – there was two lefties that I faced in long at-bats. So I was 17 pitches into my outing. And I hadn't thrown a pitch right-handed yet. So I took th- two throws with the shortstop. I visualized a pitch or two in my head. And then you get up there and try to go. But that's that's been a work in progress. And really, the last couple of years is the first time I've really had a complete handle on, you know, how to do that and maybe mentally how to approach that. That's something that took a long time, even professionally for me. Yeah, so a- after the disappointment of the freshman year and now sophomore year, junior year, I mean, you're pitching really well. Your junior year, most viable player of that conference tournament. How did that feel to, especially after the disappointment of your freshman year, be able to have the success you had? Yeah, especially that uh, that junior year there, it was an exact rematch of that conference championship game from freshman year, us against Wichita State. And uh, Gene Stevenson started seven lefties against me because he didn't think that I could pitch efficiently left-handed because of low velocity and I think you know even though I was a reliever I started that the championship game went into the seventh and I think I had 10 strikeouts against his lefties so that was that was pretty sweet just because you know growing up in Omaha watching him bring his team to the college world series every year he was kind of a a college baseball icon and then to see him 
do that to you and, you know, kind of maybe put you in a light that you don't like to be in, it was nice to, to give it to him that night. Was that the most that you ever had to throw left-handed? Yeah, that, at that point, yeah, that was, you know, I think I threw over 100 pitches that night, um, and I pitched four innings a few days before. But, uh, you know, at that time, you know, when you're in college and something like that, you have an opportunity to bring the first conference championship home to Creighton. It was, it was a special night. Okay, so after the junior season, you get selected by the Yankees, 45th round, and you decided to go back to college. But there was also some discussions before even the draft. Explain where you were mentally and where you thought you were with your career. Right. Uh, I'm very real when it comes to, you know, my ability, and I understand or, you know, where my velocity puts me in the professional game. I understand that even more than I did then. But uh, at the time, I knew that it was going to be a long, long road to the big leagues. You know, being selected in the 45th round is makes it very hard to get to the big leagues just because there's not a whole lot of money invested in you and other things like that. And I felt that at that point, it would be better to just, you know, finish my senior year of college. That way I could have my degree. And then if the situation presented itself again the next year, then I would pursue baseball. What did you study in college? Marketing. So, you know, business administration with an emphasis in marketing. Okay. All right. So you come back for your senior year. And what were, was there anything specific? You mentioned velocity and getting your body into better shape. Was there anything else specifically that you wanted to do your senior year? You know, just, uh, just those things right there, which you said with, you know, if you can add as much as you can um, to, to what you have. And it seemed like I, I probably threw a little bit harder then than I do now, maybe low 90s. And I'll just, I'll get up to 89, 90 on my best days right-handed. But uh, there was, you know, just, just that hope that I could, you know, maximize everything that my body had to offer and see where it left me for Pro Bowl. So then after your senior year, you get selected in the 20th round. And this time you did sign. Explain where you were on draft day and how you found out that the Yankees selected you again. <laughs> well, the first time around, there was a scout that had told me I was going to go anywhere from the 8th to the 20th round. And being as naive as I was, I just took, you know, everything that they say. Oh, for sure, I'm going to get drafted tomorrow between 8 and 20. I'm going to sit by the computer and watch it all. And that was just very trying. You know, it was just, uh, you know, it was very discouraging after a while. And then once, like, the 25th round came, I turned it off. I was getting calls periodically from scouts telling them, you know, that I probably wasn't going to sign because at that point, obviously, the money is not going to be enough to get you away from, you know, leaving your senior year of college. And then in the 45th, the Yankees just called. They said, hey, we took you. We'll, uh, we'll, be, we'll be in touch in the coming weeks if we can figure out a dollar amount. And that was it. I was, but I was extremely excited, you know, just to be selected, just – with, uh, you know, where my baseball career had come from to that point, I was just very excited. And then what about when you got selected in the 20th round your that's senior right, year? That's right. So after making that mistake the first time, the second time I stayed completely away from the computer and I worked at camp actually on campus at Creighton. So there was a bunch of kids out on the field when I got the call and the Yankees again. They, I got a call that day and said, hey, we, we took you in the 20th round this time. We'll, we'll see you in a few days. What are the ki- Did the kids know? Yeah, Coach Service, he stopped the camp and announced it to the, the kids, and they all ran and jumped on me. It was a pretty cool little moment. Okay, so your professional debut, uh, there's a video that goes viral because of what happens when a switch pitcher faces a switch hitter. But before that game, how often in high school and college would there be any of these standoffs in terms of who's going to bat which way and who's going to throw which way? Well, you know, since you know, in, col- in college there was the rule already um, established. There was one night against Nebraska where I remember we had a slight delay but uh, the umpire had ruled that I had to stay. I couldn't switch, and he let the, the hitter switch. So how, how the rule is today, that's what had happened that night. So there was never really a big standoff up until that moment. And, uh, you know, it kind of worked out kind of crazy. We were playing the Mets, uh, rookie ball affiliate. The Mets game had got ra- rained out that night. So SNY had picked up the game. 
just because, you know, in New York City, if they can get a game on TV, they're going to do it. Right. So, you know, it all worked out that that game was on TV. Otherwise, you know, nobody in the world would have ever saw that. But, <laughs> yeah, that little back and forth lasted about five or six minutes. And I was so wound up and intense because it was my first professional outing, and I just wanted to make a good impression. You know, coming in in the 20th round, you you got to pitch your butt off if you want to stay. So in the moment, I was so angry and, you know, wanting to just get the guy out that I didn't kind of realize the uh, the comedy that came from it. But to this day, people still talk about that and still laugh and, and ask me what I thought. But at the time, I was just extremely upset. How long after that did you realize, okay, this game was on TV in New York and now this video is circulating going viral? <laughs> so we were, we were in Brooklyn that night. We lived in Staten Island, which was right across the Verrazano Bridge. So even with traffic on a Saturday night, it's like an hour drive back and my phone just started blowing up. Hey, you're on SportsCenter, this and that. And then I was like, oh man, that's kind of cool. And then I got home that night and watched the video. And, you know, fortunately, you know, a lot of times as a reliever, you wind up on SportsCenter for all the wrong reasons. But, you know, that, that, that night it was a good one. So, okay, so you have this, now people know, okay, there's this ambidextrous pitcher who's, who's in the minor leagues, but you're still at the lowest level of minor league base, but you've got a long way to go. What were some of the key moments as you look back on your development as you progress from year to year? Yeah, there was uh, there was quite a few of those. Um, it was a long climb from you know the low levels, rookie ball, low A, high A. It took me about three years to get over that hump, and then in 2011 specifically, there was a day in late April where I remember calling my dad. I, I had had an awful first month in Double A. It was my first year in Double A, and I really felt that you know the game was above me, and I felt that I had gotten to a place where. You know, I, I, I can't pitch anymore. I'm not getting guys out. I think my ERA was over a 10 after the first month. And my dad said, well, you know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, he, I don't remember his exact words, but basically he said, you know, you're not coming home. You know, they're going to send you home, but you're not coming home. You have to, you know, find a way to fight through this. And that was, that was a tough time. That was a tough time in my career. And thankfully I had a, a pitching coach named Tommy Phelps, who I still see from time to time. He's now the AAA pitching coach with the Yankees. He taught me a cutter right-handed, and I don't use it anymore. But at that point in time, I don't know if it was a mental edge or it gave me something that I needed to, you know, go out there with a little bit more confidence on the mound. And, you know, maybe like as things would have it, like two or three days after I had that conversation with my dad, I, you know, the pitching coach told me a little bit, and I went on like a 24-25 inning scoreless streak in Double A, And that really got the confidence going again. And as you know, in this game – confidence is everything if you can go out there to the mound with that confidence it's uh, it can really help but that was one of the big ones in my career so when you're at this low point how much do you think or do you think trying to do both is just too hard or is it just the level of competition in general it was the level of competition for me because it wasn't like i was going out there and just dominating lefties and you know getting crushed against righties or vice versa it was just uh trying every day was just a, a tough outings you know i was giving up runs both left and right-handed and, you know, it was it was just one of those things that I had to work through. Okay, so in 2012 is when you suffered the torn labrum in your right shoulder. Yeah. Did you – could you still pitch left-handed? I, I could. And how it happened was I felt it go. We were playing a minor league game, the end of spring training against the Phillies. And I had never really experienced any type of shoulder pain ever. You know, when guys would tell me their shoulder, I was like, what are you talking about? My shoulder feels great. If I ever get sore, it's in the elbow. But it just went on one pitch. And – I remember thinking to myself, this, this isn't good. But two days later, um, I was going to say something to the trainers and Marlins park was just opening up and I was one of the minor leaguers selected to go with the big league Yankee club 
down to Marlins Park to open it up. And that was my first time ever being in a big league stadium. So I'm like, oh, I'm not going to say anything now. I'll just try to get through these games. And then I, I went down there. I ended up not pitching until the last game against the Mets. But as it worked out, I was just pitching left-handed. So my plan was, all right, I'm going to say something after this game today in spring training. And at the time, I was supposed to go back to AA. I'd never been to AAA before. Get a call when I get on the car to drive up to AA. They said, hey, we're going to start you in AAA to start the season. All right, I'm not going to say anything now either. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so it was my first time in AAA. And then about three innings into the season, I just I got to a point where I couldn't throw any more right-handed. And uh, I did pitch nine innings all left-handed. But it got to the point where I would pull my glove, you know, point the glove to the target, pull it in, and it was just excruciating pain in my shoulder. So it got to the point where I, you know, I couldn't do that. I had to go try to rehab my right arm, but uh, it, it didn't work. Had to have surgery, and the same thing coming back from the surgery. I pitched in the World Baseball Classic with Team Italy, strictly left-handed. But with all of the rehab work I was doing with my right arm, as well as the pulling and the pointing in-game, you know, motions. It, it just kind of made everything difficult. So when you have a shoulder injury, it's been my experience that until that thing is fully healthy, if you want to pitch with it again, you can't pitch with that other arm. So when you're pitching exclusively left-handed, how different is that when you're now seeing a right-handed batter at the plate? It's tough. You know, and there's, there's days out here where I have to do that. You know, if I, you know, say I use 35 pitches the night before right-handed, I'll come out. And it's not very often, but it's happened twice this year where I've had to face lefties, or excuse me, righties as a left-handed pitcher. And it really takes away from the advantage that I have. The only thing it does is it allows a manager to be flexible with how he uses the bullpen, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> so, number of years in the Yankees organization, now you become a minor league free agent. What did you think minor league free agency <laughs> would be like, and what was the uh, the reality of minor league free agency? Well, you know what? So, you know, when you're in your first seven years of your contract as a minor league baseball player, at least for me, I never saw a two-week paycheck over $915. So I was just so excited, you know, because I was married at the time and my wife was still working. I was just so excited to, you know, at the thought of maybe making more than $10,000 in a year, you know, as a 29-year-old. So I was just so excited to have that happen. And I was very excited for maybe what teams would call. So that first day, I remember the Braves called um, and, and all I really wanted out of free agency was an opportunity at major league camp, you know, and, and to be in AAA with a decent monthly salary. That, mm -hmm. That's all I wanted. The big thing for me was the major league spring training invite because I had seven years with the Yankees, never once invited to camp, you know, as, as, a, as a permanent, you know, big league invitee. So I talked to the Braves. The Braves had, had offered, you know, a low amount and no invite. And then later that afternoon, the Angels called, a couple other teams, and then Oakland called that same day, all on the first day of free agency. So I was, you know, extremely happy with the amount of teams that were calling just because you don't know if anybody's going to call. You don't know how other teams perceive your value, especially when you don't have a whole lot of velocity. But, uh, you know, it was maybe two or three days later that Oakland had, you know, my best-case scenario offer and an invite to, to spring training. So for me, I was I, I got all that I wanted out of that first uh, free agency. Yeah, for sure. And the A's are the perfect organization for a guy like you because this is the team of Moneyball, and they don't have high resources. And they've always been an organization that took a chance on guys like Matt Stairs, who had been like at you know a dozen years in the minor leagues. Even Adam Melhews, they gave a great chance to Melhews after he was like 32 and he finally got a shot in the major leagues. So it seemed like the perfect fit of an organization and a guy with your talent. Right. When you're, you know, I was two weeks shy of 30 when I got called up and it's not a whole lot. It's, it doesn't happen very often that you get that opportunity, no matter how well you're performing in the, you know, the lower levels of the minor leagues. But 
for me, I saw the opportunity to, uh, to get to a place that, you know, maybe if I pitched well, I was going to get my chance because they don't care how people perceive them. They have no problem answering to the media why they call certain guys up and things of that nature. So I got to a place to where I, where I could have a shot. And, you know, that being said, with my seven years with the Yankees, there was never a point in time where I feel like, you know, it was a no-brainer for the Yankees to call me up. They didn't think that I was ready to pitch at that level. And, uh, you know, I'm sure for those seven years they were right. And luckily Oakland allowed me that that uh, opportunity to prove myself in AAA and then get my feet wet in the big leagues that first year. If you don't mind me asking, in, in off-seasons, you mentioned how little money that you're making. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you've got a wife. How do you survive? What odd jobs do you take in the off-season to make sure that you can pay rent? <laughs> you know, uh, luckily, until I got to that free agent point, my wife, she was working full-time, so it made things a lot easier on us. And we didn't have kids or anything at the time. So at that point, you know, I was just doing things like uh, youth basketball referee. Okay. I was a uh, substitute gym teacher for an off-season. But, uh, you know, I was very fortunate to where I didn't have to, you know, do anything crazy. And I was able to find decent jobs that, you know, that pay decent, you know, as far as off-season jobs go, especially the referee gig. You can, you know, make a couple hundred bucks on a Saturday in the winter. It's, it's enough to get by. Yeah. All right. I always love asking guys about the the random jobs that they do in the off-season. And I've heard some, some doozies in my time <laughs> yeah. because it just really goes to show, like, how much more – I mean, look, we're both on the Pacific Coast League. There's a lot of times when you wake up, we have to wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and you got a flight at 6 a.m and then you got another flight in another city and you're dead tired when the next day starts and it's really easy to sit back and feel sorry for yourself but I think that those off-season times help remind you like okay maybe I do feel sorry for myself a little bit but still this 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 beats not playing baseball or being involved in baseball absolutely and you just think about all those talented guys you know that are independent ball right now that would give anything to play at this level and are talented enough to play here it's just there's just not enough spots so I never take a great day for granted, whether it be here or in the big leagues. This is uh, this is a pretty great life, and we're lucky to have it. Okay, so it's now the 2015 season. You've signed with the Oakland A's. You go to spring training. You have a good spring. They send you to AAA Nashville. You go off to a really good start at AAA Nashville. Tell us how you learned that you were going to the major leagues for the first time. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a pretty good one as well. We were playing Salt Lake City, and I remember it was the national game of the week. It was the only time all year where we were going to be on national TV. And we got into extra innings that night, and I hadn't gotten the game. And I was two or three days off, and I was wondering, what's going on? It's the 12th inning. They still haven't called down. And we had, at the time, four guys in our bullpen on the 40-man roster. So being called up was the furthest thing from my mind. We had Ryan Cook, you know, who was mm-hmm. a, a great reliever at the time. I figured he was well ahead of me, you know, as far as guys who were going to get called up. So I get called into the office after the game. And like I said, getting called up was the furthest thing from my mind. So the first thing I go to is, oh, my God, there was a microphone down in the bullpen. What did I say during the game? Because <laughs> right. when we're down there in the bullpen, right. there's no telling what we're going to talk about right. over the course of the first five innings of the game. And sometimes it's it's not things you'd want your mother to hear you mm-hmm. saying. So I, I get called into the office. And um, when I signed my – Was this Scarsoni? Yes. Okay. Yes. Scar was in there with, along with our pitching coach. And they brought me in and – you know, I was nervous as heck to begin with, but then he started off with talking about my out in the contract. So then I was like, okay, good. I didn't say anything terrible. He was just asking because it was, I think, June 4th that night, and my out was June 15th. And he said, you know, the, the general manager had called and, you know, let us know that you have an out in your contract on June 15th. And he's like, why are you going to take that? And I was like, what is this guy talking about? Is he trying to get me to show my hand right now or what? <laughs> right. 
So I was like, ah, you know what? I haven't really thought about it. In reality, I thought about it nonstop for right. the last two weeks. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and I was like, I haven't really thought about it. I don't think I'm going to take that. I, I don't think that. I'm gonna, I like what I'm doing here right now. You know, you're pitching me a lot. And then he just stopped me. He's like, good, you're going to the big leagues tomorrow. You're, you're going to be in Fenway Park. And I just, you know, I didn't know what to say. I said, are you serious right now? And he said, yeah, you know, got up, hugged me, hugged my pitching coach. And then when I walked out of the uh, manager's office, all 25 of our guys were waiting for me, like, you know, to just congratulate me just because of the eight or the seven or eight years that I had been at the time. And just those guys knew what I had gone through. And the majority of those guys in that clubhouse had been to the big leagues and just wanted so bad for me to experience that. And that was a, that was a pretty cool moment. So when you get to Fenway Park, ex- explain just arriving at Fenway Park. Where do I go? Where's the visitor's <laughs> clubhouse? You know, this cathedral of baseball history. So <laughs> with my time in the Yankees, I was kind of spoiled when it came to like airport pickups. Right. When I had my surgery, I was coming out of double A and they would fly me to and from New York on a monthly basis with, you know, a limo service, taking me from to the airport to the doctor's office, doctor's office, back to the airport, you know, all in the same day. So transportation was always taken care of. So I was thinking it was maybe going to be the same, you know, for my call up with the pig leagues, but <laughs> this is Oakland. <laughs> this is Oakland. And, uh, that being said though, the A's, they, they treat their players very well. This is just one of those things where I had to get a taxi from the airport that night. It was a Friday night in Boston with all the delays that my flights had had throughout the day. I didn't land until six fifteen that night, seven o'clock start, seven o'clock game at Fenway. So I get in the taxi, and they, the, the travel secretary had told me what gate to come into. But at that point, the player's entrance behind the, the stadium or wherever they go in at was closed. So I had to go into the main gate with my Oakland Athletics <laughs> bag as well as the rest of the fans because it's right at first pitch time. So it's jam-packed. And I didn't have a player's ID or anything. I get to the gate, and I say, hey, I'm, I'm here. I'm playing for the A's. <laughs> thinking guys like, yeah, right. <laughs> So I know I'm serious. And like we talked to a security guard who they had actually alerted that I was coming. So they walked me through the concourse. And then at Fenway Park, the entrance into the visitor's clubhouse is right in the concourse, right by the concession stands and everything. So I'm walking by, you know, getting heckled by all these Red Sox fans. I ended up getting into the clubhouse in the first inning. And I remember Tyler Clippard was sleeping on the couch. He was our closer at the time. So I made sure to be super quiet to not, not wake him up, signed my contract. And then I went down the hallway and that was a pretty cool moment. Just, you know, walking down those steps in between the clubhouse and the dugout at Fenway, it kind of hit me for a second, just to think of all the guys of all the ex, you know, Yankees, man, all those guys, Ruth that had walked through that clubhouse, just down that tunnel, you know, that probably hasn't changed much in the last hundred years. It gave me goosebumps walking out to the dugout. And right when I got up to the top of the step, uh, Bob Melvin was there. I shook his hand and, uh, you know, made my way out to the bullpen. It was, it was a pretty cool moment. And then here you are, adrenaline, probably tired, probably haven't slept a whole lot, but he's going to throw you into the game right away. You know what? I, I thought, you know, when I got there in the second inning, I didn't get a chance to do any of my pregame routine or anything like that. I played catch a little bit in the bullpen. I was like, oh, I'm probably not going to pitch tonight. We got a few guys ready. And then as the game went on, we were losing by two. I was like, oh, well, they're probably not going to use any of their main guys tonight. This uh, this might be a good time for me to get in this game. <laughs> right. Sure enough, the sixth inning rolls around, and uh, I don't really remember anything about that warm-up. I don't remember, you know, I, the first thing I remember is leaving the bullpen mound and then just, you know, getting out to that mound. I, I had talked to my college coach that morning. He had service, and he said, throw strike one and get the first guy out. The rest will take care of itself. So that was my main focus. And I did both of those things. I got a head first strike on Brock Holt and got him to ground out 
to start my outing, and that kind of settled everything in and was able to go a couple innings that night. Yeah, so you faced uh, the minimum two scoreless innings, and the sixth batter that you faced, Blake Swihart, switch hitter. How much did you even have a chance to decide strategy-wise which way am I going to make him hit? You know what? So in the minor leagues, I faced him probably 10 or 15 times, and every single time I faced him, I pitched left-handed to him hitting right-handed. So... You know, as as it went on, I, I asked. I looked in the dugout, and Melvin wanted me to pitch right-handed. Or I had asked the inning before. I'd come into the dugout, and I said, "You know, Swihart's coming up third this inning. Which way do we want to face him?" And they told me to pitch right-handed. I was so wrapped up into the game, I told Swihart that I was going to pitch left-handed, just because that's how I always pitch to him. And I I get on the mound. I'm like, "Oh my God, I'm not supposed to do that. I'm supposed to pitch right-handed." So I step off, and there was actually a little bit of a delay where the umpire and I had a discussion where I told him I messed up. I'm supposed to pitch against him right-handed. And uh, as the rule goes, they didn't have to allow – they didn't have to let me switch. But uh, fortunately, they did, and that uh, turned out to be my first major league strikeout. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, so four games, and you did not give up a run, five and two-third innings. And then once again, here comes the shoulder injury. Yeah. It was – and I remember – so I didn't know about the first time that you explained about how the, the labrum until today and how that affects – even when you're trying. But I remember fans ask, you know, why can't he just pitch with one arm? Uh, so here you go going through that again. Yeah, it was, that was a tough, tough day. I had pitched uh, at that year with uh, Nashville. I had never pitched back-to-back days. I was always, you know, well-rested, you know, maybe once every third day, every other day at most. And then when I first got called up, I was in three games in four days, I think is what it was. And two of them were multiple innings. And I think just a combination of the stress of the situations and, you know, my arm's not being used to that. My right shoulder gave out on me a little bit. And I, I at the time, I honestly thought I had to- tore my labrum again. So I had got, uh, I think it was that night before I pitched against Texas, maybe two and a third innings. We ended up winning the game in the 10th. And I got to my hotel room that night and I told my wife, I said, this isn't good. Like my shoulder is killing me right now. And I had said something to the trainer after the game, had him work on it a little bit, thinking I was going to be fully fine. We had a day game the next morning. And I couldn't even play catch. And at that point, I had to go get an MRI. And fortunately, I only had to miss about seven or eight weeks. But it was still, you know, it was still tough that, uh, you know, you get up there and get off to a really good start and just have, you know, basically miss almost two months of major league time with that. It was tough. Yeah, absolutely. Especially as long as you've waited and you you get to this point and and you're having success. Um, When did you move the arm slot on the right arm lower? When did that change yeah, occur? That was uh, that was right at the start of the 2014 season. So I had just come back from my labrum surgery. It took about two years to rehab that. And in spring training, um, the Yankees had asked me to drop down. I wasn't a fan of it. As easily as it came to me left-handed, it took almost two full years to get that right-handed. And it's still kind of a work in progress, progress where... You know, I just I feel comfortable with that over-the-top slot. But all of that started in 2014. They basically told me, you know, if, if you're going to pitch for us this year, it's going to be sidearm. So that's just how that worked out. Let's talk about gloves. Uh, you have a uh, – Mizuno has a custom-made at six fingers. Um, describe – was there ever a time before you got this custom glove that you'd had to alternate the gloves in Little League or anything like that? Yeah, I was seven years old when I got my first one. And I think that's pretty much when we started – player pitching where the coach you know was no longer pitching so ever since that time I've had a you know a two-handed glove and the way it worked out was Greg Harris who was a longtime right-hander in the major leagues was able to pitch both hands but I think he only did it in one or two games but Mizuno had already had that glove for him 
So, you know, the, the manufacturer was ready to go. All that had to happen was my dad just had to trace my hand. We faxed it at the time. Okay. The fax machine. <laughs> right. Sent it to uh, Osaka, Japan. And uh, about two and a half months later, I had my first day ambidextrous glove and it's just been getting big, bigger ones ever since. Yeah, that that's really neat. Um, I hope that these aren't weird questions, but so when, when you're playing catch before the game, the way that all pitchers do, does your normal catch partner have to throw twice as much, or do you throw half as much as you would normally throw? Ex- explain some of these like kind of inside the ball, inside ball things. I don't think I'd have too many friends in that bullpen <laughs> if one of them had to play catch with me both hands. But no, I'll throw throw with my normal catch partner every day, who you know at the AAA level changes so much just because of all the movement we have, and then I'll throw with the strength coach or you know a coach with my other arm okay Okay. luckily our our strength coach here tyler has great arm he can long toss with me catch flat ground so it's it's easy here so so that was my other question too about long tossing as someone who throws from a lower arm slot how much do you still want a long toss and how do you from a long from a lower angle right yeah i just use that time pre-game you know in my head I'm, i'm loosening my arm up so it for me it helps to throw from all different arm angles at that time and even in games I don't know if you were able to notice last night, but I, I do use a lot of over-the-hand pitches, right-handed especially, not very often left-handed. But I like to just just stay ready, just in case there's days where things are struggling and you need to use that, you know, over-the-top angle. So when I'm playing catch and especially long tossing, I will do that over the top. I, I was watching in particular last night when you pitched because I was curious when you get to the mound for the final eight and you went four right-handed, four left-handed. Do you always do that, or does it depend on the situation? Yeah, it depends on the situation. This clock here is really, really a difficult thing to to get around, and you know, hopefully you have an umpire that realizes that. You know, the game's going to slow down more than it's going to speed up if you get a pitcher who only gets two or three warm-up pitches with one arm. You know, I'm not going to be around the zone. It's going to be very difficult. And for the most part, they have an understanding. There's there's certain times, though, where I'll get out there and I only, you know, with the two minutes, 25 seconds, bet- you know, between that and the long run from the bullpen, I'll maybe only get, you know, two pitches or three pitches with each arm. And it just makes for a very difficult situation. What about when you're warming up the bullpen? Sometimes you know you've got a full inning to get ready. Other times you've got to get ready quickly. How, how do you navigate that? Yeah, you got to know the lineup. I always know who's coming up, and I know which way the first hitter you know that uh, I'll, I'll probably face. So if I get a call down, I'll look on the guy on deck, and I'll be ready for him. So if I see you know it's a righty on deck in the lineup, I'll be like, okay, I'm going to get my first six or seven pitches here righty, get as many as I can left-handed, and, and make the most of it. Um, the knuckleball pitcher, Charlie Huff, he was in Albuquerque a few years ago, and I remember talking to him about the fraternity of knuckleball pitchers, you know, the Necros and um, Tim Wakefield and uh, uh, and some of the others, and he mentioned how, you know, there's not a whole lot of us, and so we, you know, we keep in touch, and, and we know each other really well. There's even fewer ambidextrous pitchers. Um, I, you know, I've gone online, and I've seen that there's a few that are in high school. There's one who played for the Indians organization for a couple of years, Ryan Perez. Yep. Um, Aubrey McCarty was briefly at Vanderbilt. He was after drafted by the Rock. It looks like he's playing outfield these days. Uh, there's a couple of high school kids. My, my question is, how often do either kids or their parents or their coaches contact you and say, help me do this? Right. And those names that you mentioned, I, I've gotten to meet all those guys um, with the exception of Ryan Perez, but I've spoke to him a lot. And, you know, he got released last year with the Indians. And I reached out to the uh, the contacts that I had in independent ball, hoping, you know, that he would be, be able to continue because these guys and he was in the Aubrey kid from Vanderbilt I got to meet him when I was in Nashville as well and he was getting guys out in the SEC both hands so that's you know that speaks to his ability it's not easy to do that and this Ryan Perez was you know from what I understood low to mid 90s left-handed high 80s right-handed 
which is more than you need to get guys out. It's just about having the feel and understanding, you know, what gets these guys out. So I would talk to them from time to time and, you know, be as much, much help as I can. But, you know, at the same time, you know, when you're in pro ball here, if you get an opportunity, you have to make the most of it and get those guys out. And, uh, you know, with Perez, I don't think it worked out for him. Has there been like kids uh, or, or, or the parents of kids who are like, hey, my son is eight years old and, and I'm thinking of trying the same thing that your dad did? Have they re- do they reach out to you? Yeah, and any time I get something like that, the only thing I can tell them is spend as much time as it on it as you can. And, you know, as we said earlier, uh, you know, until you get to high school, those results really don't matter. It's all about developing. And, you know, it's it's one of those things to where if you can, you know, get it and run with it, have some success, it, it's very helpful. But it just it takes so much to go right, you know, as you continue to climb in the, the, the levels that you're at, you know, to keep getting those opportunities. And it, it's a very difficult thing. And, you know, I wish those guys the best, but uh, I'm probably going to just have my kid pitch left-handed. Yeah, so that was my next question, right? Is your father now, um, you know, whether – is it a boy or a girl? It's a boy. It's a boy? Yeah. Yep, we have another one. We have a little girl coming in November, but, uh, you know, people ask me all the time, is he going to be a switch pitcher? And, you know, for me to say no right now wouldn't be fair. But uh, just knowing in-game and, you know, the level of competition, if you want to get to the major leagues, how difficult it is. You know, my dad – created a path for me to get to the major leagues in a way where in which if I was just a right-handed pitcher or a left-handed pitcher with the stuff that I have, I probably wouldn't even have gotten drafted if that makes sense. So for me, that was my path to achieve my dream. And, you know, going along playing this game for 10 or 12 years, if, if my son does love baseball like I did, I think I'll be able to help him in ways that maybe my dad couldn't. But at the, in the same time, using all of those things that my dad has afforded me. Yeah. Um, if you don't mind, I, I want to talk to you about a few other unique ambidextrous humans. Okay. And I want to get your opinion on them. <laughs> um, so I was researching presidential ceremonial first pitches. And apparently, uh, Harry Truman, give him hell Harry, uh, is the only president who has ever thrown out a ceremonial pitch, both left-handed and right-handed. I did not know that. That is awesome. Yeah. Did he do that in D.C. or where was he? Yeah, yeah. It was in D.C. And, awesome. and actually, the mayor of Albuquerque pitched in high school, and he threw out a ceremonial first pitch and I told him this year you have to practice left-handed so that you can do what Harry Truman did like next year when you come out I want you to throw both left-handed and right-handed and his eyes kind of lit up like okay I think I can do this I like that that's awesome <laughs> um <clears throat> you're a little bit younger than me do you remember Bo Kimball I do Hank not. Gathers. Okay, so Hank Gathers at Loyola Marymount Basketball, tremendous player, tragically dies on the court um, during the West Coast Conference Basketball Tournament. Um, he was this incredible player, and he couldn't shoot free throws, though, so he had switched to left-handed free throw shooting. And then his best friend on the team and best friend in life, Bo Kimball, when they got to the NCAA tournament, Bo Kimball shot his first free throw every night left-handed, and he made all four. I've seen the highlights of that. Now I didn't know those guys by name, but yeah. it was a very, yeah, very cool thing. Yeah, I've seen him. yeah, he drained all of them. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Uh, apparently, Billy Wagner was naturally right-handed, and there was a kid in his neighborhood who broke his arm not once but twice. The same kid broke his arm twice, and he taught himself to throw left-handed, and he threw like ninety-nine. Yeah. He was probably only going to throw 85 if he would have stayed righty. <laughs> right? Good for him. Yeah. Uh, and then there's a tennis player by the name of Luke Jensen. Now, I feel like if you're tennis, you, you pretty much have to be good fr- forehand and backhand. But apparently his nickname, Dual Hand Luke, <laughs> and he, he could serve up to 130 miles per hour, left-handed or right-handed. Now, he, he only played really right-handed. 
you know, obviously you have his backhand, but apparently uh, dual hand Luke could serve up to 130 miles an hour left-handed and right-handed. It's quite the talent. Maybe that's when I need to start doing the off-season and right. add some velo to play some tennis. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and then, uh, and then all, if you don't mind, I'll indulge you with one more. Um, there's a golfer by the name of Mac O'Grady, um, an eccentric genius, I'm told. Um, very competitive golfer. He won a couple of tournaments, and he'd goof around left-handed with friends, and he always claimed that he should be able to enter amateur tournaments as a left-hander and then professional tournaments as a right-hander. Um, apparently, he had a back injury that ended his career, but then he was just swinging left-handed and realized this doesn't hurt anymore, and so then he tried to make a comeback as a left-hander, and he wanted to change his name uh, to, like, Mac O'Grady second or something <laughs> like that. I don't hate that hustle. I like it. <laughs> right? Um, but he he mostly hit right-handed, and then he mostly putted left-handed Interesting. when he was on the tour, and he Is did win legal? two tournaments. Can you do that? Can you? Because I know bowling, you can't. You, you, if you bowl right-handed, you're not allowed to go get a spare left-handed. I don't know how that is on the tour. Yeah, I know that he fought with the commissioner of the PGA a lot, and so that was probably a source of contention. But I just thought it was hilarious that he thought that he could uh, enter amateur tournaments left-handed and professional tournaments right-handed. That's great. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I hope I don't have to get to that where I'm Sunday league left-handed. <laughs> right, exactly. Right-handed. Uh, what other things do you do left-handed besides pitch? There's not a thing I can do in this world left-handed anymore. You know, as we talked about me being able to write left-handed, I can't do that anymore. Um, I take a club, you know, in case I'm behind a tree or something in golf, you mm-hmm. know, I can punch out left-handed. But uh, other than that, uh, not a whole lot. All right. Final thoughts on it took you so long to get to the rate to reach the major leagues. And then you start to get into this area where you put on waivers and you get claimed and you get designated and you get claimed again. And now every year, you know, you're kind of hunting for a new job and a new organization and sort of what you do is you continue to have to retell your story to people like me. Every time that someone who comes into town as you continue to fight, to get back to where you want to be in life. Right. Yeah. That's uh, you know, I get asked that all the time. And for me, it's an easy answer. At this point in my career with a you know, wife and two children, you know, my family comes with me for the season. I will never do this where they can't travel with me. So until, you know, this becomes the avenue where I can't make the most, uh, you know, amount of money in a year and not provide the best life for my family, you know, I'll get into something else. But until that time, until I can share these experiences with my family, you know, my wife doesn't have to work. She can come with me and all those great things. I'm going to do this as long as I possibly can. That's awesome, Pat. It's such a cool story. And again, I can't thank you enough for uh, spending as much time as you did with me. Uh, This is really neat. Appreciate you having me. It was a lot of fun. Once again, that's Pat Vendetti, and this is Life Around the Seams. 